Welcome to the CEO.Digital Show. My name's Craig McCartney. And I'm Darcy Thompson-Felix. And this is an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights that will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders now and in the future. You can find out more and stay up to date at CEO.Digital. Craig, how did you find the interview with Mark? I know you share more than just a love of champagne. Yes, he is a fellow countryman and just so interesting to hear how one day he just, you know, had to have this new challenge in his life and just, you know, threw himself into a new country, learning a new language. And now he's at the top of his game as CFO. Very interesting, though. And I just appreciated how open he was with his insights and his experiences and where his brand Moe Hennessy is going in the future. What about you? Yeah, it was a great interview with Mark. As he said, he he was such an illustrious guest. I think for me, I really loved talking to him about sustainability, his passion for that as a project at Moe Hennessy, and also where that fits in within the changing role of the CFO. Pretty inspirational stuff. So I'm keen to hear the whole episode now, and I'm sure our guests are too. Shall we get into it? Let's do it. Our guest this week is Mark Stead, the Chief Operating and Financial Officer at Moe Hennessy. Mark oversees the global functions of finance, operations, supply chain, purchasing and IT, and is a member of the COMEX at Moe Hennessy. In addition, Mark has oversight of the Group Transformation Office and manages a global team of over 1,000 people. Mark, welcome to the CEO.Digital show. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Darcy. Happy to be here. So Mark, let's get straight into it. You know, you've had a, an illustrious career so far, you know, going from um, Walt Disney to BIC, including EY, and now uh, to Moe Hennessy. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your history and, and how it is you got to be the COO and CFO of uh, one of the world's biggest champagne brands? Yes, sure, sure. So I'm, uh, as you can probably hear from my accent, I'm, I'm originally uh, from South Africa, uh, raised, uh, grown, uh, etc., in the in the sunny Cape um, down in South Africa. I went through uh, my my schooling and my university uh, in South Africa, and then um, did an honors degree in finance and, and wanted to become a chartered accountant, as as a lot of my my friends were doing at the time. And so I joined Ernst Young, uh, one of the the best, um, I'd say, audit firms in South Africa at the time. Uh, spent a, a good three years with them, doing a lot of a lot of different things. Um, you know, from petrochemicals to fishing um, to working a lot on asset managers and, and financial institutions. And I think audit is great because it kind of gives you this very broad look at, at companies and what works and what doesn't work. And then, um, you know, I was, uh, it was back in 1999. I gave you a little bit of hint about how old I am. I, I, uh, I was driving my car back from a, an audit client one day and, um, you know, having grown up in an apartheid South Africa, um, I think I had an existential moment where I, I kind of asked myself the question, um, you know, has my success in South Africa to date been because I'm smart, because I'm, um, you know, uh, like a challenge, because I like going after things, or is it because of the color of my skin? And uh, quite honestly, I knew that I wasn't going to find that, that uh, answer in South Africa. So I, uh, I decided to come to Paris. Why Paris? Um, well, I liked wine at the time. I liked food and uh, I didn't speak the language and I knew no one. And I thought, well, you know, if I can succeed in a place where I know nothing about the culture and I know no one, uh, then I can't be half bad. So I came over to Paris uh, in January 2000 
had to rush out to buy a winter coat because obviously in South Africa and Cape Town you don't really need winter coats. <laughs> um, and uh, and then spent a couple of years with um, with Ernst and Young, uh, mainly concentrating on on asset managers and audit clients and, and a little bit consulting at the same time. And then you know decided that I really audit wasn't for me. I think I'd, I'd done enough time in audit. I learned a lot. Uh, I'd seen really what works and what doesn't work, and I thought time for me to branch out into business. To be honest with you, I think at the time I wasn't really 100% sure of where I wanted to go, um, but I knew I wanted to work in a in a big uh, in a big environment. So I joined Vivendi, a French um, entertainment uh, company that owned uh, a number of uh, um, kind of media assets at the time, including Universal Music. So I worked for them for about four years. Spent a lot of time in planes going around the world, uh, and I think that really introduced me to you know how different cultures work differently. And I think I think in today's global environment. It's so key in understanding, you know, how the Japanese react versus how the Brazilians react, and, and I think that time at Vivendi really primed me for you know, working in global, global multinationals. And then in 2006, I was offered a role in the music industry to move out of the head office and move into Universal Music, and uh, you know, cast your minds back to 2006 and think about things like Napster and think about things like uh, uh, I think iTunes had just started, and, and the music industry was in a little bit of little bit of turmoil. And um, I didn't see much of a future in the in the in the industry. I thought uh, you know, they hadn't really figured out the digital model, and they were kind of really reacting to the the music on the internet. And I thought, well, it might be interesting for me to try something completely different because I've I'd, I'd, you know, been in media for a few years. And that's when I joined Disney. Uh, you know, straight from media into uh, into leisure and hospitality. So it was quite a quite a change. But Disney was a great company. I spent eleven years in the in the business. Uh, and, you know, I really then gave myself the objective of becoming the CFO of the company. Um, took me five years at Disney to get there. And then I spent the last six years at Disney as the, as the CFO of the business. Great learning ground. Um, you know, very great company to work for. Um, very global. Um, we were a little bit different because we were a listed company on the French stock market. Um, Disney owned a minority stake in us. And then that kind of grew over time until the point that they took us, uh, took us private. Had a, had a really great... Uh, human experience, I say business experience as well, you know, working obviously very closely with Americans and in a, again, very multicultural environment at Disneyland Paris. I think there was you know, 50 nationalities represented and 20 languages spoken on the site. So it was, uh, it was an interesting time. And then I think for me, the, the, the big question came, and this was in 2016 after we'd taken the company private, you know, do I stay as a CFO of a, of a subsidiary or do I moved to the United States, which was uh, one of the offers on the table. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I really like Paris. Um, my wife has a, has a very good job here. The kids are, um, were small, um, starting school. And I thought, well, let's, let's try another industry. Why don't I go try something completely different? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and that's when I got contacted by Headhunter um, to join BIC. Uh, and BIC was an interesting one because um, it's a company that sells, uh, you know, predominantly three products, razors, lighters and pens in a world where people write less, smoke less, and shave less. And all those products are made of plastic. And, and you know, you might have noticed the world doesn't really like plastic that much anymore. So it was an interesting, I saw it really as a challenge to come in and see how I could help this company, you know, front some of those challenges that they were seeing. Uh, and, and also, you know, the bit of the digital disruption that they were seeing as well, you know, more and more um, school supplies and, and utilities are being bought online. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and BIC needed to uh, pivot to that. Uh, so I joined them um, in a role that was primed to you know, spend a year on, on as a CFO of Asia Pacific and Europe, and then I was going to move into the, the group CFO position. And nine months in, 
the CEO Gonzalbeck asked me to take over a transformation office and uh, named me chief transformation officer. Didn't know much about transformation, but I'm a quick uh, a quick study, uh, and so I spent uh, spent two years at Bic really running that transformation, breaking down the the organization that we had at the time and, and kind of setting it up for for this evolving world. And uh, you know, two years two years in, I started again asking myself the question: Do I want to be doing transformation? Uh, and I didn't see myself moving into into Bic as the as the finance guy after having gone through the transformation. I think. As a transformation guy, you often have a target on your back afterwards uh, because you make you know you rub people up the wrong way and you get them to think about the things that they've always been doing in a certain way. And you're always challenging, saying, "Well, maybe we can do things differently." Uh, and so I, I, you know, I gave myself a goal. I said, "Well, like um, I've now worked in media, I've worked in uh, leisure and hospitality, I've worked in fast-moving consumer goods." I said, "Why don't I try something different again?" And uh, just at the time I was thinking about that, I got approached for a job at uh, at Mode Hennessy. And uh, you know, who can say no to fine champagne, fine wine, and uh, you know all of the other great products we sell? I've always been a fan. I've studied the Wine and Spirits Education Trust exams up to up to level three, um, just because I've always been interested in wines. Um, mm. And so it was an it was an opportunity I could not say no to. And uh, yeah, I've been here about fourteen months now. I met you at a chief wine officer event and you were very close to winning the title. Uh, I think there was uh, some interesting activity happening behind the scenes and you, you just missed out, but uh, you certainly know your, your wines and your champagnes. I can uh, confirm that. So Mark, uh, you know, talking about the move from CFO to transformation, uh, that's, it's quite interesting and it must've been quite a jump for you. So you went from, you know, this huge transformation efforts at BIC and then moving into uh, Moe Hennessy, again, uh, back to the sort of CFO operations touching on the IT role. It sounds like you don't have enough hours in the day to get your job done. I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of stuff happening. But what do you get up to in your role currently within Moe Hennessy? What does the day-to-day look like? And and what what is the crossover like between the, the finance and the operations and the IT yeah, look, it has been a very interesting ride. I think I joined just over a year ago, so full in a pandemic and and you know working from home, which was an interesting proposition to meeting everyone on on tiny little screens on your laptop, um, not knowing how big they are, how small they are, uh, and and to be honest, there's still a lot of that going on because I haven't been able to leave France. Um, I, you know, mm-hmm. I visited our our installations in the south of France in in Champagne and in Cognac, but I haven't been out to any other parts of the world. I'm looking forward to that, and hopefully, um, you know, with uh, the ongoing vaccinations, we should be getting to that towards the end of the year. Um, so I joined as as the basically as the finance guy, and um, they asked me to oversee a little bit the operation side, so IT purchasing and, and the supply chain. And I suppose nine months in, um, my boss said, "Look, we'd like you to to take on the, the chief operating officer role in addition to the finance role," uh, and. I'd also helped them run, uh, and that was from day four of arrival, um, a, a batch of about um, 12 initiatives that we were going after to um, to try and uh, save ourselves some money to reinvest in other parts of the business. Uh, and in December of this past year, my boss said, hey, look, we'd really like to kick off a transformation initiative. Uh, so would you like to do that as well? Um, so it's been keeping me very busy. Uh, you're right, I do feel like there's not enough hours in the day. Um, but my day is my day is full. Um, you know, I, uh, at the moment, I'm not traveling, so I think I probably have a little bit more hours um, than I probably will have in the months to come. 
Uh, but it's very, very split between, um, I'd say, those three areas, following up on um, the initiatives that we're running across our transformation initiatives. It might be the things that we're looking at champagne longer term. It might be how we're looking at our, our, our spirits portfolio, uh, how we're organized as a company, how do we get more agile, um, how do we integrate some of the acquisitions that we've been making, because that's, a, that's a, a bit of a new area for us as well. Um, you might have seen we just bought um, a champagne company called Armand de Brignac, uh, which was uh, um, a champagne company that was very driven to where it is now by Jay-Z. Uh, so interesting that we're, um, we bought 50% of that, so we're getting into a partnership with Jay-Z. Amazing. Um, but all of that takes a lot of work in, in integrating these things. So I think I'm, I'm across a lot of that from, a, from an operations point of view. I'm across a lot of the transformation initiatives. And then the business is ongoing. You know, we're, we're managing through maybe hopefully the end of a global pandemic. Um, last year was a wild ride. Uh, you know, visibility dropped to almost zero. This year, we're seeing some very, very strong recovery. I think we've seen that, uh, you know, as markets have opened. Uh, I, did, I noticed the other day, and this is not one of our categories, but I think they ran out of beer in the United Kingdom after after they opened up all the pubs. Uh, the supply <laughs> that does sound like us. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're, we're seeing a lot of that, a lot of pressure on the supply chain now. So you know, my day can be very varied. It can it can be from looking at business reviews of our different uh, our different luxury houses and, and and parts of our business to uh, to regional business reviews to looking at our our IT transformation plan and some of the big systems that we're working on um, to discussions about uh, maritime and 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 uh, you know how we're negotiating space on ships to get things across to the United States and and. Um, and uh, and Asia, and then two very corporate things, um, you know, discussions that we might be having with LVMH and Diageo and preparing kind of um, presentations for them. It's a very varied role, um, and it and it keeps me it keeps me very busy indeed. I can imagine. I mean, yeah, it does sound it. And we've been lucky enough here on the CA Digital Show to have a range of guests from a range of industries. And you touched on a little bit there, but you know your your industry and your positioning is quite unique um, as a luxury brand. And you started to talk about it a little there, but I'd love to hear kind of some of the specific challenges that your industry is facing at the moment and how Moe Hennessy is approaching those. Yeah, sure. So you're right. We're at a bit of a, a crossroads between um, you know what I would term as maybe some of the the other alcohol and, and wine and spirits groups like a Diageo or a Pernod Ricard, which are probably more akin to, and they're going to hate me for saying this, but more akin to, you know, fast-moving consumer goods companies. Yeah. It's really about managing categories. It's really about pushing product into the, into the distribution, into the shops. Uh, we, we've taken a slightly different approach. We have about 80% of the premium champagne market and uh, I think over 45% in terms of value of the entire champagne market or 50% of the cognac market. And then we're a little bit smaller in, in, in the wines and other spirits market, but but our products are generally premium products. When we talk about premium products in, in the, the alcoholic beverages segment, it's probably things above 30 euros, 30 pounds, 30 dollars uh, that we're selling. And, and it's, you know, in the time of pandemic or uh, the challenge that it faced us is really um, people trading down or not spending. And we, we did see that in the beginning of the pandemic, I think, which is quite normal because you're a little bit worried about what the future is going to bring. And I think generally when you look across LVMH, um, the rest of the luxury portfolio also in the early days of the pandemic were quite heavily hit. As people kind yeah. of peeled back on themselves, uh, you know, they rushed out to buy toilet paper um, and they hoarded up things in their houses, right? Um, you're not gonna necessarily going to hoard up on champagne. There's some of us that do, but you know, most of the yeah, world Yeah, I was going to say. 
Uh, and then, you know, so we've seen something quite interesting happen since we started coming out of the pandemic. And I'd say we started seeing things change probably summer of last year, actually. So it was quite a quick turnaround. We had a very, very difficult February, March or March, April uh, time period and things started flattening out and then accelerating. Actually, And even though we ended last year with revenues down 15%, um, we're pretty much catching up to, to 2019 levels now and actually going beyond that. Because what we've seen is uh, as the pandemic continued and, and again, across the luxury portfolio and, and because we kind of are playing in that segment in alcoholic beverages, we've seen it happen as well. Whereas people have, have started to treat themselves as slightly better products. And maybe it's because they're yeah. not traveling. Maybe it's because, you know, the share of wallet is bigger now that, that they have more availability to spend on other things. Um, we've seen people move up from a, you know, say a Prosecco to a champagne. Uh, and then maybe from a, from a base champagne to a more premium level champagne. And at the moment, they're staying in those segments. So we're not fully open around the world. Uh, I think we, we've got a big question mark hanging above our heads is what's going to happen when the bars and the restaurants really fully open. If people were drinking, um, you know, Verve Clicquot uh, at home, or will they continue to drink Verve Clicquot in restaurants? Because we know those are premium priced in, in restaurants and in bars. Yeah. At the moment, it seems like they are. Uh, and I think, you know, once you get a taste of some of the premium um, alcoholic beverages that are out there, it's difficult to go back to some of the maybe not premium stuff. But, you know, I also do recognize that, you know, people are going to start traveling, people are going to start spending on other things. And so we're just trying to deal with that visibility. We're trying to take the sales that are there now. But we're also trying to plan beyond, um, you know, the next uh, 12 to 18 months and to make sure that we have the agility in our supply chains to, uh, to react to whatever's going to come. Uh, we don't quite know what it's going to be yet, so we're planning on various different scenarios. And so a lot of it is about how do you best anticipate now quite what could be quite big changes in consumer consumption patterns. Makes sense. And I mean, kind of on from that, you know, as a luxury goods provider, you have to balance digital innovation with more physical processes, including production. And obviously, in your case, champagne, which has you know, such a, a legacy and such a history. And, you know, there's a, a real sense of kind of traditional elements in, in where it has to be made in, in the processes. So how do you balance these seemingly competing elements? And what are the challenges of bringing such a varied organization forward and taking on a, a transformation project? I think you said it really well. There is a, a tension between short-term changes and and, and the long-term. Um, you know, Royal, one of our oldest champagne brands, was started in 1529. Wow! Uh, so we've got we've got wine uh, Chateau d'Iquem, which I think was started in the 1300s, if I remember correctly. You know, we've got a lot of these brands um, that that we are the current custodians of that have been around for you know hundreds of years, and the goal is that they're around in another hundred years' time. Uh, and so, you know, when it comes to things like agriculture, we really are looking at the long game as well. We're looking at now, how do we get to sustainable agriculture? How do we bring in more biodiversity into our into our wine fields or our champagne fields? Because we we know that when there's more biodiversity, well, there's more spreading of the seeds, and and it's just better for the plants, um, and it's better for the soils as well. And so, but when you do that, you're probably reducing um, you're reducing yields because you're using up some of the land to to plant biodiversity. But for us even though that might have a bit of a negative short-term effect, we think we're better off in the long game because you know, our children will then inherit land and vineyards that are of a higher quality. 
at the same time, we're looking at more shorter term things. And you mentioned the kind of the digital transformations that are, that are happening. You know, we've seen that sped up in the pandemic where people have started buying alcohol online. A lot of the times you'd go down to your supermarket, you'd go down to your wine shop and you'd buy a couple of bottles and you'd bring them home. Well, in today's world, you know, you can more now than maybe in the past, buy a case of wine and have it delivered to your house. You know, sometimes that delivery guy is going to bring it up if you're in an apartment to your apartment, he's going to take it down to your cellar, he'll pack the bottles for you. There's a whole lot of services that start opening up that make consumers' lives a little bit easier. We, we're seeing that. We're seeing you know, e-commerce and e-retail sales of our products you know, really take off. They're growing in the, in the high triple digits. Uh, we think that's going to continue. Now, what we don't have yet is a very strong presence of our categories or our brands or our maison, as we call them, uh, online. So if you go to a Hennessy.com, you're not going to be able to buy Hennessy. Uh, you've, got to, you've got to go to a partner of ours. But we know mm. that clients and, and consumers want to have that relationship with us. So we're working quite hard on, on bringing to life some you know, luxury digital experiences where people can also buy our products online and have them delivered in, the way, in a way that we can control the experience right to their house. Uh, and we're also working on, on you know, getting closer to our consumers and we're working on you know, what we term brand homes, which is when you come to um, Champagne, instead of just having a learning experience where you go down to the cellars and you understand how Champagne is made, maybe we can show you what, what our version of lifestyle in Champagne is. And maybe you can have a uniquely Moet and Chandon experience that you can't find anywhere else in the world. We're also looking at retail, you know, because we know that we have consumers in the United States or in, in China that might not be able to come out to visit our vineyards. So why don't we take it to them? Um, and why don't we create retail experiences? We've started, we have a, a Hennessy bar on the Bund in Shanghai, uh, which is very much, um, it's a small little bar, um, but very much in the realm of Hennessy. When you walk into the bar, um, we're talking about our legacy. We're talking about all our brand codes. So there's a lot of ways that we're modernizing the company, but at the same time, remaining very, very true to our heritage. And, and, and it's, a constant, it's a constant discussion about not going too fast or too slow in either of those. Mark, you're a very easy person to interview. I'm not going to lie. We've got a list of questions here that we'd love to ask you, but you just keep on answering all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to repeat anything. I do, I do want to touch on sustainability in a bit more detail, perhaps further on in the discussion. But while we, we're talking about your competitors and, and all these new plans for the future, what are you seeing from your competitors, are, are you are you seeing like these direct consumer movements and uh, creating these digital experiences? Are you do you feel like Moe Hennessy is keeping pace with your competitors, or, or are there things that they're doing that has caught your eye? I think I think all of the big alcoholic beverage groups, if we if we call them just for for argument's sake for this discussion, are competitors, um, which in a certain sense they are, and in a certain sense not fully, but. But let's go with that at the moment, because I think it's probably the closest and it'll be easier for people to understand. You know, when you when you look at a, a Pelna Oikau and what they're doing with Drinks & Co, which is which is creating physical experiences in retail for, for consumers, they're, they're starting to roll that out, you know, around the world in France. Uh, they have operations in China. Very, very interesting because they're it's another take on kind of retail entertainment, a learning experience, a mixology experience, plus a bar experience all combined into one. So it's really about bringing some of their brand codes to the consumer, but not just in a not just in a retail environment, but also in a kind of bar social mixology learning environment, which is which is interesting. You see uh, Diageo doing the same. Um, they opened a, I haven't been able to see it, but a, um, 
think it's a, a Johnny Walker whiskey house in, in London. There's a flagship that I, I read about the other day. So I know they're also breaking into or pushing into, into retail because that's the way you have you know, controlled experiences with your clients and your consumers. Uh, you know, today, mm. when you go and buy a bottle of champagne on a shelf, you're picking it off at I don't know, Sainsbury's or wherever you're buying, it's not necessarily the champagne experience we want to give you, uh, right? It's the Sainsbury experience. But we'd, so we'd like to get a little bit into that. And we'd like to say, well, maybe some consumers want to have a full experience. Maybe they want to see how we would sell champagne or how we would serve champagne or how we would mix champagne or cognac for that matter or some of our whiskeys as well. And so I think all brands are seeing this. Um, and I think that's what consumers want. Consumers want more, more so than ever to have better relationships with brands. And I think the digital world has provided people with a lot of that. I mean, look at, look at all the stuff that's going on on Instagram at the moment. Look how we've gone from pictures to videos so quickly uh, because people want to see, they want to experience. And, and so I think all our competitors are doing that and, and we'll see where the wins are and the fails are in, in, in the, the months and the years to come. But I think we've all recognized that that is important. And then I think everyone is also looking at sustainability. Uh, again, some of our competitors also have brands that go back decades, if not, if not centuries. Some of them have very new brands that they'll try, they'll test, and then they drop and they move on to the next thing. Uh, we're not really in that, um, in that mindset. You know, if, we, if we create a brand and we're quite hesitant at creating brands, um, we want to make sure that we have a story that there's a legacy in there somewhere and that this can continue for the next 100 years. So we're a bit picky about that. Uh, even though we've had some failures, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say we haven't. But you know that that notion of longer term and sustainability is important. And, and you look at some of the the recent um, Diageo moves in in sustainable materials and and biodegradable bottles that they're doing. Um, like I was saying with, with Johnny Walker, I don't think it's operational yet, but they want to move to kind of an all paper bottle. We know glass is is heavily polluting as a as a material. Um, mm. So everyone I think is moving in that direction. And I, and I just think it's the, again, that we all believe here at, at Moet Hennessy, it's the right thing to do. And I think some of our competitors do as well, because they are, again, very intrinsically linked to agriculture in some of these brands. And when you're in agriculture, well, you know, you're only as good as what the land gives you. Um, and if you don't treat the land well, well, you know what happens over time. Uh, and if you're there in the short game, sure, you can throw a lot of chemicals on the ground and you can, you can push up yields. Um, at the end, you're not going to get out a great product, but it, it might take a Know, a decade or so to get there. And, and I think we don't want to go down that road. We really um, focus on the longer game. And I think, again, a lot of our competitors are doing that as well. Yeah, you guys are you guys are doing okay, actually. I just saw um, an article this last week, and you are listed as the most valuable wine and champagne brand in the world, about $1.225 uh, So whatever you're doing, it, it seems <laughs> like it's working. Yeah. The... <laughs> The sustainability thing, if done correctly, obviously it is a big topic um, at the moment and, you know, rightly so, but if done correctly, that is also a competitive advantage. And like you're saying, a longer term play. Is there anything that you can unpack a little bit more from that perspective? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, look, we, we, we look at it around probably four areas at the moment and, and we do a lot of work as well with with LVMH on this. Um, so when I look, when I talk about four areas, um, the first one is obviously biodiversity. Again, when we're working with the soil and, and with uh, crops, essentially biodiversity is important. I, I don't know when the last time you went out to Champagne, but it's it's quite a monoculture area, right? It's just vineyards everywhere. It's just grapes, uh, uh, Venus vitatis, and and so we know that at some point you want to you want to start moving away from that. So what we've started to do is we've started to 
plant shrubs and trees. Um, it's, at the moment, it's a bit of a test phase. We're doing a lot with um, with Rui now, but also with Rote and Chandel and with some of our other uh, maison. We've noticed quite interestingly that there's been more birds that have been returning to Champagne as we've been planting more trees, uh, which is which is interesting to see. You see these impacts very, very quickly. So biodiversity is a big focus of ours. Um, you know, there's other things we've been talking about uh, recently about how we want to replant forests. You know, when you look at a, a brand or a maison like Hennessy, we use a lot of oak barrels every year. Uh, the, that oak comes from trees. And so we want to make sure that we're actively involved in replanting those trees, uh, not just in France, but around the world. So biodiversity is, is a big focus. And, you know, we, uh, we want to um, make sure that, uh, as an example, by 2026, you know, we've reduced greenhouse emissions by 50% versus the 2019 baseline. And, and we're at 100% green energy across all of our production sites. Uh, and with some of our sites, we're already there, but we're going and we're actively moving our other sites to um, you know, sustainable energy and new beach producers. The second area is obviously climate change. So I touched on that with greenhouse emissions. Mm-hmm. You know, we're focused on, on uh, climate change. What's quite, I'd say, quite good about our products is we, we tend to, to ship most of it by sea. Um, we want to go a step further. So, uh, you know, with the, the, the Hennessy uh, Maison, we're looking at can we use sailing ships instead of uh, petrol-based ships or diesel ships. Uh, so we're going to try, uh, we're going to do some uh, tests on using big sailing ships to ship our, uh, our crates of, uh, of cognac across the ocean. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see what that does. But, you know, we're testing things. We're not sure all of these things are going to work. Uh, but if we don't start working on them, we know they're definitely not going to work, right? Um, so climate change is obviously a big focus. And, and, and again, it comes to silly things like looking at everything we've learned in the pandemic and, and, and about the ability to continue moving a big organization forward versus business travel uh, and getting on planes and going and seeing people. So there, there are a lot of decisions that we're taking now about how we're going to try and contain business travel uh, in the future. Um, and we know that with today's technologies, you know, we can manage global organizations without being on a plane every, every, every week. Um, then the third area is, is around circular economy. So here it's really materials, and you might have seen that with Hue now we're using a sustainable, um, we're moving away from boxes and using a sustainable protection for the bottle, which is actually very pretty as well. And so that's another area that we're trying to we're trying to focus on. And what we're also trying to do is charge people for this, so give people the choice. You can have the naked bottle, or you can have the bottle with the protection around it. And if you want the protection, it's going to cost you money because it costs money to make these things. And before we weren't really charging anything for the gift boxes. It was like a, an added extra, except that's where it's really polluting. So we want to move away from that. So we're really focused on, you know, the circular economy, the materials we're using. Uh, we're looking at the after after glass as well. Um, you know, how can we move to um, sustainable materials for bottles, which is not easy. Uh, we haven't got the solution yet, uh, but we're we're actively working on it with a number of a number of uh, outside organisations. And then the other area that I think we're very focused on is also being very transparent about what we're doing. And, and here, not for the sake of, you know, mediatizing it or trying to sell it as, look how good we are. That's not our focus. Our focus is just making sure that if a consumer wants to know at some point where the grapes that in his bottle came from, well, he should be able to find, he or she should be able to find that out. And, and so all of these elements are also things that we're working on. Uh, you know, we can't stick all of this on labels, but we want to look at how do we put these on websites so if people really want to go and look, they can. And an interesting pre-runner to this if you bought a bottle of Krug champagne recently, is the Krug ID, which is quite interesting. You download an app, 
you scan the ID on the bottle and it tells you everything about the bottle. It tells you what's in the bottle, when it was put in the cellar, you know, who made it, uh, how long it's been in the cellar, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it gives you music that has been composed for that particular cuvee. So you can drink your champagne listening to music that was specific. Again, a lot of different things. Maybe that's not on sustainability, but it, it's, it's, it's a pre-runner to, you know, the traceability of our products and the transparency of what we put in them and then what goes around them as well. So I think those four aspects, you know, biodiversity, climate change, circular economy, and, and transparency are things that we're very focused on. Yeah, I love that. Um, I mean, you wear many different hats in addition to your, your role as CFO, but I mean, who do you think and, and kind of which function should hold responsibility for sustainability within an organization? I think in my mind, it, it, there's a lot of different players. Um, mm. And I don't think one one function owns it. Uh, and I don't think you're gonna have one function own it. I think, I think it has to be right up to the executive team uh, and everyone should own it. Uh, at the moment, we have a chief sustainable sustainability officer um, that that that, uh, that we uh, we named about a year ago. Yeah. Which you do need coordination when you've got the number of um, you know maisons that we have and uh, production sites, etc. You do need someone that's, that's organizing across there and helping set standards and, and driving towards it. Um, but you know, I see I see my finance team very engaged in that as well. We're looking at how do we get towards a, a green PNL, you know, the IFRS International. Financial Reporting Standards um, Group is looking at that beyond numbers PL. How can you look at what you're taking away from the planet and putting back into the planet? No idea what that's going to look like, but you know we're exploring it um, because we think that finance needs to play a big role in in this drive. Yeah, purchasing is obviously very involved. The supply chain extremely involved. You know we're looking at how do we make our supply chain green? How do we give the consumer the choice? If the consumer wants to be delivered on an electric vehicle, well we should let them be delivered with an electric vehicle. We don't really know how to do that at the moment, other than maybe last mile delivery. But it's something that we're actively working on, and we have a you know we have a task force that's looking at that. Uh, IT as well, energy energy use. Uh, you know, what's in the cloud? Okay, put it in the cloud. That's great. But 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 what's being used in terms of energy? How do we get to carbon neutrality with all our with all our IT systems as well? Absolutely. So there's a there's a there's work that needs to be done on that. So I think really everyone owns this. Uh, and it really needs to be something that's that's driven from the top. And I, I'd say at Moed Hennessy and, and even at LVMH, it is something that that our leaders and and, and we and me as part of the leadership team take very seriously. We've got a, still a lot to do. I mean that's clear. Mm. Uh, but you know we, we're taking the steps, and we have been taking the steps over the last few years to get to a destination. Um, and uh, and again, it, it's something we take very very seriously. That's great. I can definitely kind of feel your passion for it. And, you know, in addition to adding kind of sustainability to your roster, how do you think the CFO role has evolved and changed over the past few years? I think it's become, it's come quite a long way. You know, I remember when I started working, the CFO was more of the, you know, the guy that did the reporting, came out every month and said, okay, here's our P&L, here's the, the revenues we get, there's the profit. And, and, and let me explain to you, you know, where that came from. And maybe a little bit the bastion of you know, internal control, mm. uh, you know, making sure that you know contracts were maybe signed and 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 whatever, whatever. But that was very much of the focus. Maybe a little bit more back of house. Um, then there's been a large a large wave, I suppose, over the last decade or so to to business planning, to to a strategic um, thought partnership. And I think that the CFO has moved more and more out of just looking at the past, but being a lot more focused on the future. And so, getting into things that that are not just overall PNL, but also um, 
you know, profitability by channel and driving a lot more insights as to where we're directing the business and how we can improve that. And I think the, the role is beyond that now, moving more into kind of this transformational mode. Um, and, I, and I think I'm really glad of the, and, and happy with the experience I had at Vic because it, it really stands me in good stead now as I'm, I'm helping push organizational change through the company or transformative change. Now I have the transformation cap, but I, I think even if I didn't, um, there's still so many things that, that finance can help push through in an organization because you touch everything, right? Finance is a bit everywhere. Yes. Uh, and it, when finance can show the way on things that we're changing, whether it be being agile, being, uh, being more simple, um, et cetera, et cetera, you can start driving positive change in an organization. And I think the, the CFOs of tomorrow are going to be very much transformational leaders for their organizations. And I think we throw around the word transformation a lot, but I think transformation is moving to a kind of continuous transformation because the world is changing so quickly. Um, you, know, you could have your distribution models change uh, in, in 24 months. Uh, and, and I think we're seeing that very, very quickly with, with some of our distribution models. And, and I think finance needs to make sure that we're agile enough to, to, to be changing all the time. And that one way of looking at a business doesn't mean you're always going to look at that business that way. You need to be able to pivot very quickly to look at a business in another way if things change. Um, so I think uh, finance as a change agent is definitely the, the CFOs of the future. And Mark, we, you know, we work with a lot of technology brands ourselves. And we run loads of these events where we are inviting CIOs, CTOs, CDOs, et cetera. Everyone also wants to invite um, the CFO when, it, when it's relevant, obviously, because the CFO signs off on, on these big transformation projects. And I guess my, my question to you, Mark, is what role does the CFO play when buying and investing in technology? So I think that there's, a, there's a couple of aspects in the in in the answer to your question, the first is it's very much of a team aspect um, and, and really getting everyone together and looking at where we want to go uh, and, and then understanding some of the technology that might help us get there. Um, we're trying to change it a little bit here at Modency in that I think traditionally you'll, you'll have found that IT organizations um, respond to briefs and requests. So you might have a, a sales organization that says, hey, I'd really like to see um, as data in, in you know, client uh, sales data in this way and like this. And so um, you know, the IT division will go away and, and start a big project and then come back and say, okay, this is what, we, what we're going to do for you. Uh, and, and for me, I feel like those days are a little bit behind us um, where we're trying to drive IT is to say, well, why, don't, why doesn't IT become um, one part of the initial discussion right up front? Because maybe they can see technology beyond what the maybe the sales in this example the sales team might see and to say hey we actually have we we know that by looking at it by using this and this technology you might get this and this insight and actually then get the, the sales owner say oh that's actually maybe a better way of doing it. and having this kind of co-decision making and, and, and co-building of the strategy in the future um, i don't think we, we we're there yet but it's a it's the path that we've embarked on and i think where that really helps is Technology is moving so quickly today. You know, I remember studying technology at university and we were talking about mainframes and stuff. And, and you know, when you think about what's contained in your phone right now, it's mind-boggling. Um, and what's out there even more is, is even more mind-boggling. And we can't all be experts of that. So you can't expect our head of marketing or head of sales or, or et cetera, et cetera, to be experts in all of this leading technology. So you really need your, your IT guys to be out there exploring, um, seeing what's out there, and then bringing that knowledge into the business and helping the business leaders use that knowledge to then chart the course. 
and and I think that's that's a lot of what what I'm pushing us our CIO here and he's doing an outstanding job in that is really bringing that outside knowledge into the company and then co-constructing the future uh, not not having technology just as a an, an answer to a problem but really integrated into the whole kind of strategy in the first place definitely um i mean i want to ask you one last question mark before we get on to our speed round that we close off every episode with and that is you know across all industries you know large heritage brands like moe hennessy are facing disruption from you know startups smaller agile disruptor brands and i just wondered you know if that is something that you're experiencing either from the sort of beverages industry or from the kind of luxury side at all and and if so how do you compete with them so there's two ways to answer that question i can i can say the one way is um the barriers to entry to champagne and the barriers to entry to cognac is just enormous. And so no one yeah. can really go after us. Um, that would just be a, a, a cheeky way of answering it. I think the, the real answer <laughs> is that um, there's a share of throat, right? If I can use that term, um, you, you know, you're not gonna, you've got so many different products out there today from ready to drinks to spritzes to, you know, rosé to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and consumers have the, have that choice at their fingertips today. Uh, and so we are being disrupted. We are being disrupted by new products that are coming to market. You, know, you look at look at the gin industry and all these little micro gin distilleries that are popping up all around the world. Um, they're taking share of voice for consumers. And they're taking share of throat. And so, in a way, we are being disrupted. So it's it's forcing us to make sure that we're we're more modern as a brand. We're more top of mind, um, and we show people that champagne, as an example is not just a brand you drink to wish happy birthday to everyone, but you can drink it at a meal. Depends on the, the, the type of champagne, but you can drink it with a meal. You can, you can have champagne with a meat dish, quite frankly. There's some really good champagnes that go very well with meat. Uh, people don't really know that. You can also have it with fried chicken. Exactly. <laughs> Let's not rule anything out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But a lot of consumers don't know that, right? So you know, I think we really see it as, as one of our missions to talk about that. Uh, and then also to to share more of our brand DNA. Like, what are we about? What are these Maison? What is Moet Chandon? Where does it come from? What is it done? Um, you know, why 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 would people want to drink Moet Chandon? Great, it's a great liquid, um, but it's beyond that. Um, there's a whole big story behind it. It's like when we buy clothes today. Sometimes more more often than not, we kind of want to know a little bit more about the brands that we buy because we identify a little bit with it. And so I think that's where we can get a little bit better, and, and maybe where we have more legitimacy i would say when it comes to some of these new disruptive brands because we've been around for a couple of hundred years we've had time to figure out who we are and where we want to go totally yeah now just a case of, of sharing it well thank you so much mark this has been an incredible interview and we're remiss to end it but before we do uh yeah we'll fire some of our favorite uh short questions at you and if you could fire some quick answers back i'm going to kick off with uh one of my own favorites which is asking you uh what's your guilty technology pleasure i think it's the instagram stories uh the little reels <laughs> uh, i get so addicted to watching that it's actually bad because it takes me away from my work sometimes which it shouldn't <laughs> They are so addictive. Just sit there scrolling. Yeah. <laughs> we, we won't tell your boss. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, old world versus new world wines, Mark. What's your preference? Well, that's a hard question, but I'd still say old world. <laughs> if you wanted a quick response. <laughs> and what is your sort of go-to drink of choice? Champagne. 
but far, but far. I'm, I've always yeah, been a big easy. champagne fan and, and I can't get it out of me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we do like to ask this, this is usually Craig's question, but I'm going to steal it, which is, you know, do you like to use WhatsApp or Signal for your encrypted messaging? WhatsApp. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> do you, well, this is another one I like to ask, but you know, what, if you're, if three people had to describe what you do, how would they do it? And, and I mean, what would your family say that you did for a living? What would uh, your boss say you did? And what would your friends say you did? So I'd say my, my wife would say that I, I play with Excel all day. <laughs> um, you know, she, when I talk about my job, her, her eyes, eyes kind of glaze over. Um, uh, my, my friends would probably say I, I probably sit around drinking champagne all day. Um, and, uh, my boss, uh, would probably say that I don't do enough. <laughs> <laughs> Too busy on Instagram reels. <laughs> so, and then, um, to sort of round it up, but slightly more serious question, but we have a lot of sort of budding, uh, C-level, um, listeners that, you know, are, are sort of aiming to be part of the C-suite. Is there any sort of advice that you would give someone who wants to be a CFO, you know, for a large organization, which you've had lots of experience in? Uh, look, there's a lot of there's a lot of different paths to get to a CFO. I think um, I had this discussion with with, a, with um, someone that works um, uh, in my teams just yesterday. Uh, you know, um, she's in audit at the moment, internal audit, and she was wondering how does she break into finance to become a CFO and not although actually internal audit is the route I came up. Um, so it's a very clear route to get to, to get to the CFO seat. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, people that I know that have got there by the accounting route, uh, by the business planning route. Um, uh, some that have gone outside and been bankers and then come forward into, into, uh, into CFO roles. Um, and uh, so I don't think there's one path. I don't think people need to be fixated on one path. I'd say what's really helped me is the diversity of the experience that I've had um, and also the diversity internationally of the experience that I've had. And even though I've, I've been based in France, I've, I've, I've had the, the luxury of, of working for very global companies. And, and that was something that I purposely went after. Um, and, and you can do that when you're in interview processes, when you're looking for jobs. I, I really felt that, and I continue to feel that the world is getting smaller and smaller and, and we do need to know how to navigate between uh, cultures and between industries as well and not be not you know have to think that we need to be in one industry to attain expert levelness um and and it's only that way mm. uh, the the breadth of experience that you can have by, by moving industries actually allows you to take a lot of step back and, and seeing the bigger picture of, a, of, a, of an industry that you're walking into uh, because often a lot of times people do things because they've always done it uh, and i think I think having the luxury of, of seeing different industries and how things work, you know that there's no one right answer. And so I would encourage people to you know, make sure that they've had some diversified experience, some international experience, uh, and then not be afraid, and this is the biggest one, not be afraid to ask stupid questions. Because a lot of people will say, you know, when I, when I get to the top seat or when I get quite senior, I can't be seen as not knowing something, so I don't ask the question. And in fact, that's, I think, the wrong thing to do. The right thing to do is ask the question. You can ask it in a way that's intelligent, but you need to ask the question. Um, otherwise, you're never really going to understand. 
I couldn't agree more. Having done so many of these different types of events, you know, you listen to the conversation and people are asking questions. You're like, oh, I just assumed they would know that. But yeah, yeah I totally agree. And thank you so much, Mark, um, for your for your candidness and, and just sharing your, your insight and expertise. It's been uh, really insightful. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I really enjoyed myself as well. Thanks, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure. To our listeners, I hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as Craig and I did. Um, If you did, please do rate, review and subscribe uh, wherever you choose to listen to these fantastic podcasts. Thank you for your time. Goodbye.